Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Good morning. Over the weekend in Sudan, two different military groups suddenly broke into open conflict. One group is, I suppose, the official army of Sudan. The other is a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Force, which appears to be want to be integrated into the main army. The two groups ended up trying to capture each other's bases. The United Nations says that around 200 people may have died in the conflict and that civilians are stuck in the middle of this. But there's a bigger backstory to all of this in Sudan. There have been long-running protests after the army refused to formally hand over power to a civilian administration. All of this was sparked by the decision by the army several years ago now to remove Omar el-Bashir from power. And then overnight, there was supposed to be a 24-hour ceasefire, which was which was first announced by the paramilitary group, and we understand was to be respected by the army. So then, what led to this conflict? What are the prospects for Sudan now? Firstly, this morning, the situation for people in Sudan during this fighting. Alyona Sienenko is a regional spokesperson for the Africa International Committee of the Red Cross. Then, uh, Faith Mabira is a senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue, and Aisha Shakaji is an Africa analyst. We start then with the spokesperson, the regional spokesperson for Africa for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Nairobi, Alyonia Sienenko. Alyonia, good morning and thank you for your time. Really do appreciate it. Good, good morning. Thank you for having me. Firstly, I don't know. I don't know if you know if the ceasefire did take hold overnight, if there was fighting there overnight. Do you know if there have been any more casualties overnight? The last that I heard from my colleagues, which was last night, that the fighting still continued. So unfortunately, we got our hopes uh, high, but uh, the fighting still continued. And uh, it is extremely frustrating because as a humanitarian organization, we were ready uh, and we desperately need this uh, humanitarian space, desperately need this humanitarian uh, pause to provide urgent help to people in need. What is the situation? How many people have needed your help? The United Nations says at least 180 people have died. The last figures that I've seen is over 200 people have died, over 1,000 people were injured. And of course, because we, are, because our own teams, they have been sheltering in place in Khartoum, just like uh, all the other residents, because the heavy fighting has been taking place continuously very close to residential areas uh, we were unable to move so it's extremely difficult to provide accurate figures but what we can say for certain is that humanitarian situation is getting worse with every hour that uh, fighting is ongoing um so do we i mean this must mean then for ordinary people if your teams can't move around ordinary people can't move around they can't get help if they need it they can't take someone to a hospital Indeed, and this is uh, extremely worrying. People have been hiding in their homes, hiding in the basement, and they have been without uh, running water, without electricity for days now. They are running out of food, and uh, some venture outside at, uh, at their own risk, but it's also extremely dangerous because uh, bullets are flying around, sharp noise flying around, some even hit our offices and residences. Uh, all this is extremely dangerous and uh, people desperately need uh, some respite. Um, we have this conflict. There's been a long period of protests in Sudan, so instability. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, could this also have an impact on food supplies? I mean, if this goes on for a long time, people won't be able to move food and other supplies in and out of cities. 
This is a very good question, actually, because I think that uh, because Sudan hasn't been uh, that much in the media headlines for quite some time, people tend to forget that even before this current crisis started, there was already an extremely dire humanitarian situation there. There were roughly 10 million people uh, facing uh, uh, food insecurity, and that number was growing because of the ongoing violence, because of the uh, difficult economic situation, skyrocketing food prices, and also the effects of climate change. Um, So all of this means that for the people in Sudan, they're probably going to need help. I mean, do you think you're going to need help from the outside world to help people there? People in Sudan, they have they have needed help for some time now. And of course, this need is just going to become more acute after this uh, fighting. And uh, also for us as a humanitarian organization, it has been extremely, it has been increasingly difficult to be able to keep uh, international community and the donor community engaged on protracted crisis like the one we're facing in Sudan. Thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate the time. Elyonel Sianenko is the regional spokesperson for Africa for the International Committee of the Red Cross on the line there from Nairobi in Kenya. You were there, CFM. 21 minutes now to eight to nine the time. Faith Mabira is a senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue. We continue on SFM with your media conversation about the crisis in Sudan. Faith, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning to the listeners. From what we know, what started this dispute between these two military groups? Why did they suddenly start fighting? So, um, in framing the the context of the the recent skirmishes that we've seen now playing out, um, I think it's important to premise the fact that this has been a long time coming. Um, Analysts, activists, leaders of the 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 pro-democracy protests and even um, some of the civilian components who engaged in negotiations had been warning that this was um, uh, was in the works. But um, essentially, the latest um, sort of play out of violence between the two um, rival military uh, factions was essentially boiled down to the question of their status um, in the in the entity which um, returned to uh, a, a democratic um, civilian-led transitional government. So it's that that is what is at context at the moment. But in saying that, the tensions. Um, have sort of been building up over time, and it actually drew, goes back to the kind of history and the emergence of the rapid security forces led by Mohammed Dagalo, and the kind of relation that this had with uh, General Bouhan's um, Sudanese armed forces. So it's important for the listeners to know that uh, that uh, Dagalo's rapid support forces was actually a product of the Janjaweed uh, militias, which. Uh, uh, ousted leader Bashir had sort of gathered together to fight um, an Arab um, rebel um, in Darfur. So in 2013, uh, what happened is Bashir repackaged this uh, militias into now what is what known as the Iraqi Support Forces, led by Hemeti. And it's interesting that now, um, come 2019, with the popular revolution that ousted Bashir, and we have uh, uh, Hemeti uh, Dagalo and General Burhan um, sort of getting into this with very convenient partnership, portraying themselves as guardian of the revolution and essentially leading the sovereign military council. And what what this this then set the stage for for the rapid support forces to begin a consolidation of economic 
and political power. Um, they tapped into the lucrative gold sector in Sudan. Um, they also had very, the backing of very, very wealthy foreign patrons, including um, some of the allegedly the United Arab Emirates, um, with whom um, is rumored to have very close relations with. So at the heart of this contention then is the question of integration um, of, of the rapid support forces into the army. This is one of the provisions that was put forward in the, the transitional framework argument that we saw being signed between the military and civilian components of the UN-backed process in December 2022. And consequently, there's been uh, phases of, of confrontation between the two sides in, in tackling issues such as security sectors on transitional justice. So at the heart of this recent skirmish is the question of, on one hand, um, Bruhan is saying that, saying that there's a timeline and that the RSF needs to be integrated into the army, but on the other hand, MNT um, Dagalo is keen on maintaining his holding power, not losing his political um, capital, and, and, and hence that rivalry now is playing out um, as a firefight at this point. Okay. So, so what's at stake? <laughs> what's at stake from what you're suggesting is, is power and money. I mean, people want political power and people want control, perhaps even of things like gold. Yes, because that is the lucrative setting. It, it's not a secret just how much, um, how much of a stranglehold the army has had on the Sudanese economic uh, um, sort of sector. Um, controlling um, a range of not only your your state-owned enterprises, your your mining sector, your your um, industries, so letting letting a go of that is is quite um, I think going to be a difficult um, sort of bargaining uh, proposition. But on the other hand, um, to up to this point, it can be argued that in a way what um, sort of incentivize the military to engage in the talks that have been led by the, the, the UN and, and um, the EU among other partners was that um, the Sudanese economy has been going into a nose dive over a while. It's been caught up in um, in, in a case where there's um, lack of budgetary support, suspension of international aid, and this has um, sort of fostered very difficult macroeconomic conditions, um, which have obviously fed into the ongoing political protests. So in a way, the, the pro-democracy protests merged um, with uh, the deteriorating socioeconomic um, conditions, and this has given rise to um, this climate where we see um, uh, social unrest becoming um, a common occurrence on, on the Sudanese Sea. Okay, so I understand, or I certainly saw reports yesterday, that the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, spoke to the leaders of both sides of this military conflict. And I was not aware of a sort of big U.S. interest in Sudan, if I can use that phrase. Is the U.S. playing a role? The U.S. has been um, one of the voices that has been supporting um, the U.N.-backed uh, um, sort of political process. So from that perspective, in terms of the diplomatic pressure, in terms of um, getting the parties to the table, certainly they've been involved from that perspective. Now, as to the question of why um, I'm, I'm saying that this is um, rather um, a very complex issue just from a diplomatic and, and from perspective of getting the two sides to talk, is just the, 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 the geopolitical nature of the conflict. Like I mentioned, both of this um, um, and um, um, rival sides have the backing of um, wealthy foreign patterns. So just to give you an example, for instance, I already mentioned um, um, allegations that Hamedi um, has uh, built very close ties um, with the Arab, United Arab Emirates. On the other hand, Bruno is said to be very close to the um, to the Egyptians, 
uh, among others. So what, what essentially is also playing out on the, on the media is a battle of narratives. So each of these sides is now painting themselves as supporters of the democratic process, as um, having um, legitimacy in the backing of not only um, political factions on the ground, and it's becoming a multi-dimensional um, sort of conflict. So navigating that that process while also remembering that um, the context that Sudanese find, the Sudan find itself is that they, it's a very militarist society. Um, the, the, the society is flush with um, um, arms um, and all sorts of munitions. So this does not help in terms of the security situation and the basic um, situation. Um, and on top of that, in such a, a context where we have armed groups essentially fighting the kind of threat that, are, that is posed to civilians and the safety, uh, and those who are caught up particularly in, in the war and zone. So that is the kind of the context that in which we are operating in. So there is a geopolitical dimension for sure um, in, in, in the tensions that are playing out. Um, Sudan in the last few years has already had to give up uh, some territory to South Sudan. Uh, there was, of course, the Janjaweed militia issue as well, which is very, very serious. Um, it, it, it's sort of further north, quite a little bit further north, you have Libya, which has become a country when, after Gaddafi was removed from power, uh, has become a country really at sort of war with itself with different warlords. Um, I realize Sudan is very different to Libya, but is that something we need to be very aware of in Sudan at the moment? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. So, so what I'm worried about is, 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 could this turn into another civil war in Sudan? Let me put the question that way. Um, the, the, the signs are there that this could set the tone for um, spiraling conflict, um, just because of how interlinked the drivers um, of conflict I've mentioned are. Um, not to mention, not to forget also, Stephen, that in as much as there is a lot of hope. Um, um, like um, cautious opti- optimism, um, sort of garnered around the recently signed um, framework agreement. It's important to mention that this document did not have popular support on the ground. It was mostly seen as a compromise by some factions of the um, forces for freedom and change um, and the military component. But on the ground, particularly the resistance committees, have maintained their sense that they had no intention to negotiate with the military um, just because and military component just because of also the, the kind of dealings and the kind of involvement that the military has had in not only um, the killing of civilians and protests, but also um, in the fact that there's impunity and there's been no accountability and no justice um, for civilians killed by state security forces. So this this is um, part of the, the, the issue and also the framework argument, um, just as a, as, a, as, a, as a point to reinforce, it, it sort of papered over some of the key issues that are very sensitive to the future of Sudan. Questions like your security sector reform, which touches the heart of Sudan military relations, and also questions to do with transitional justice, as, as, as I've mentioned. So in, in a way, um, by them engaging in open conflict and, and expiring into conflict, it's a way that they sidelined and, and sort of... Um, really uh, undermine that, that process to a large degree. So to the question of whether there will be now momentum to regain another political process and another mediation process, that, that's left to be seen. But once the guns have gone off, as I, as I said, um, it now becomes interesting for the, for the parties and, and the, in as much as the AU is trying to get um, a mediation team to go and, and, and get the parties to talk, it will now have to be uh, uh, very adept at um, ensuring that they really address the levels of 
power that are now um, under contest. And as I've mentioned, that includes economic aspects, geopolitical aspects, and ultimately the question of control over the security sector. Faith Mabira, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate it. Senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue. In a moment, Aisha Kajib, the Africa analyst on the situation in Sudan. SAFM, guiding you through the rush hour traffic. Pretty good through uh, Midran. No uh, major holdups on your way through to Joburg. Although once you come off the N1 onto the uh, Mike one, then it gets slow from uh, Buclou all the way down uh, towards Marlborough Drive. Marlborough Drive is very heavy as well, uh, coming in from the N3 from sort of Far East Bank as you make your way through uh, in towards the uh, Cramerville area. So a lot of congestion there. Uh, the N1 south to William Nickel, bit of a backlog to get off. Still no traffic lights there. Uh, Durban, a crash at Spaghetti Junction. It's the N3 out of town. Uh, if you're heading out towards uh, Pine Town, just after Sherwood, it all gets a bit slower. Crash in the construction between Komashu and Gateway. So if you're on your way to the airport, King Shaka International, uh, that is slow. Peter Maritzburg down to Camperdown. Fine, no dramas in the roadworks today. Uh, big drama, though, going into Cape Town on the N1. It's very heavy. If you uh, take the N1 from the Belleville side, make sure you get plenty of time to get through. Uh, there's a truck crash incident off the road, well off the road in the reeds and bushes, and felt uh, N1 inbound at Marine Drive. But there are some emergency vehicles up in the left shoulder and everybody having a look at it. So the N1 into Cape Town this morning, morning stays heavy from Plattercliffe Hill. Um, you won't be expecting that. Normally it uh, eases up by this time. Uh, the N2 inbound, the Hospital Bend stays busy and there's some queues on Marine Drive this morning. Uh, Milnerton down to Lagoon Beach and then a secondary queue as you approach the N1 through Pardon Island. Rob Byrne, SAFM Traffic. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Continue your Mediated Conversation this morning around the situation in Sudan. Aisha Kaji is an Africa analyst. Aisha, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me on the show. As your previous guests have indicated, the situation in Sudan is extremely complex. It's currently a humanitarian and socioeconomic crisis, but its roots go back generations, not just the past four years since the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir. Um, well, the whole issue is also that what you, what most of us would probably want is a civilian government in Sudan. I'm presuming this conflict yes. between these two armed groups is going to put that back. Absolutely. It's already been put back by the refusal of the army to hand over power according to the designated timetable. But in addition to that, the dynamics of how the rapid support forces of um, uh, Hemeti, that's uh, Mohammed Hamid uh, Hamad Dagalo, how those rapid support forces came into being is also very important. You mentioned earlier the Janjaweed. Well, the RSF essentially um, evolved out of one part of the Janjaweed and Hemeti was actually their controller under Omar al-Bashir's regime. So he has, uh, you know, the threat of charges on... Um, uh, under international law, hanging over him like a sword of Damocles. So too, on the other hand, does the commander of the military, General Burhan. So both of them are essentially war criminals, Stephen. And the fact that the Forces for Freedom and Change, the umbrella group of the civil society actors that have been so active in overthrowing Omar al-Bashir, the fact that the Forces for Freedom of Change is now aligning itself with Hemeti and his rapid forces give you some idea of how incredibly complex this, this situation has become because while the RSF and the army did help in the 
overthrow of Omar al-Bashir. It was, of course, with the int of controlling the economic capital. Aisha, we seem to be losing you there. Let's see if we're able to get back in touch with you just to try and uh, finish your mediated conversation this morning to understand better the situation in Sudan. Certainly, the other question, of course, is what does the rest of the world need to do? That becomes a bigger question in all of this, just to understand uh, what role other countries can play. The African Union, I understand, taking this very seriously. As you know, also, uh, the US, their Secretary of State, speaking to both sides in this uh, yesterday, which I think does show to an extent their interest and does show their attempt to try and bring some kind of peace to all of this. So yeah, let's see if we're able to just continue the conversation with Aisha Kaji, uh, the Africa analyst at the moment. Uh, it seems quite busy in the middle of something as well, uh, but just trying to understand a little better the situation in Sudan too, just to make sure that we're able uh, to bring that to you as well. So yeah, lots of that to come. Don't forget, of course, uh, you'll hear from KG in a little while. Sakina will be with you as well. Uh, Eldrin will be with you later. So there'll be a lot to come here on SAFM through the day. So all of these things to come. We'll continue the mediated conversation in Sudan in a moment. Mediated conversation on SAFM. Sorry for the interruption. Back now with Aisha Kaji, the Africa analyst. Right, Aisha, we have you back. Um, what should the rest of the world be doing in this? If we've got a situation now where this is happening in Sudan, is there much of a role for the rest of the world to actually play? Well, the rest of the world is already involved in Sudan, Sudan, uh, Stephen. Um, uh, they have been for the past. All right, I think I think we're going to call it quits on this. This is clearly not going to work. I do apologize. We've been told we would be able to speak to it. It is one of those things. It does happen sometimes. There was actually a fourth guest for today's mediated conversation who uh, didn't answer at all when the moment came. But as you and I both know, that so often issues around load shedding make things very, very difficult. So it does start to become quite difficult sometimes. Uh, people do their best, I know, to make themselves available to talk to you in the mornings and through the rest of the day. But sometimes load shedding does just make it impossible. All right. Well, in that media conversation, that was Aisha Kaji. You heard earlier from Faith Mabira, senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue. And starting us off as well, the regional spokesperson for the African International Committee of the Red Cross from Nairobi, Alyona Sienenko. Uh, just updating you on the situation in Sudan. She said, from what they understand, it seems that that 24-hour uh, ceasefire did not actually take hold overnight. That, of course, is going to make it harder, one presumes, for people to come to some kind of longer-lasting peace uh, in Sudan, unfortunately. But... We also know that people are there trying to broker some kind of peace. This broke out very quickly. Maybe one can hope that peace will come very quickly as well in some way or another. Well, let's hope that, in fact, that is the case. There'll be a lot to come today as well, of course. There'll be a lot of news to come, I'm absolutely certain, uh, through the day. You know what our country is like, lots of developments that have been happening at the moment. So I'm sure there'll be developments in Joburg after Gaten McKenzie said he was no longer available for the position of mayor. <laughs> I would be amazed if there's no development at all around Tabor Besta simply because of the way it is. And the other big issue, of course, is load shedding. Let's see if Eskim are able to make some improvement to the stage five load shedding we're in at the moment and the stage six load shedding that we do expect to be a little later. We, of course, will return tomorrow. There'll be a lot more to come from SAFM Sunrise tomorrow morning, a lot more news and a lot more interviews and mediated conversations. I'm do working on a mediated conversation on a property in the Western Cape and the value of that property compared to the rest of the country and how it seems businesses 
businesses and people are moving to the Western Cape. We'll do that, of course, tomorrow. From Zilma, from Banyana, from Stanza, from Mdu, from myself. Look after yourself. Uh, look after everyone around you, and we will see you tomorrow.